0: Next on Book TV's Afterwards, American University professor Ibram Kendi argues that America must choose to be anti-racist and work towards building a more equitable society. He's interviewed by Imani Perry, author and Princeton University African American studies professor. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Ibram, it is wonderful to be here with you to talk about this extraordinary book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, and I have so many questions, but the first one uh, is, why this book now?
1: Well, of course, I'm just excited to, to sit down and, and talk to you about this mm-hmm. book, Imani. And I mean, the... The reason is because I feel like the people asked for it. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, You
1: know, my last book, which was The History of of Racist Ideas, Stamped from the Beginning, Mm -hmm. I also chronicled the history of anti-racist ideas.
2: Right. And Mm -hmm.
1: and really sort of showed their collision, their clash, Mm -hmm. the debate between them over time. And so when I would speak about that book, I would would encourage people to be anti-racist. I would encourage them to sort of move away from the racist ideas that, had been ingrained in them,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so the more I spoke about being an anti-racist, the more people were like, okay, tell me a little bit more ah, about okay. that mm-hmm. anti-racism stuff, because as you know, people are taught in this country to be not racist, right? and so this construct of being anti-racist was new, so the more people asked how to be an anti-racist, mm-hmm. the more I realized that this, this was a book, um, and I, feel, I felt like I could potentially answer it.
0: So that's really interesting because um it sounds as though it sounds as though you weren't you hadn't necessarily planned to oh, write no. this book no. right <laughs> and I was thinking because stamp from the beginning is an extraordinary book you are a historian through and through and there there is a kind of um a risk associated with writing a book that has like really immediate implications yes. right but you you felt called to do this and um Talk about the distinction though, but that you that you draw because you draw it in a very kind of um, clear and cogent fashion. One of the things I noticed is that so many of the authors of of like concurrent books on race that are considered really kind of critical have all written this extraordinary praise of this book, which is an indication of how important it is right that the people who have thought deeply about race say, yes, mm-hmm. we need this book so What's that distinction? What's the distinction between just being not racist and anti-racist, and why is that so important?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, let's think about the how this term "not racist" ha- is emerging currently, and right. how it's it emerged historically. And so, people typically say, "I'm not racist," when what? When they're charged with right. being racist, as so, a
0: defensive gesture, right?
1: Precisely, right. And, and and I don't think even well-meaning people, even people who are trying to be part of the movement against racism recognize really that the history of this term. So when a eugenicist were classified as racist, they said, I'm not racist. When, when right. Jim Crow segregationists were charged with being racist, they said, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. And, and now today, even white nationalists are <laughs> right. saying, I'm not racist, right. no matter whether they're in the White House or, you know, uh, planning the next mass shooting. And, and so I don't think people realize how much fundamentally this has been a term of denial,
0: that mm-hmm. that has
1: really, all I've been able to really uncover of its meaning right. has been this sort of way to deny and, you know one's own racism. Mm-hmm. While anti-racist has a clear philosophy, it has a clear history, just mm-hmm. as racist has a clear philosophy and a clear history.
0: Right. So what I think is really um, interesting and powerful about that move is that it gets the reader and the potential sort of person operating in community shaped by this book out of the question of sort of guilt, right? Yeah. So so the point isn't really whether or not you personally are a racist. The point is what are you doing about mm-hmm. how racism pervades every possible aspect of life in yes. this nation,
1: right? Precisely. and And I think that's I think many people say they are not racist mm-hmm. because they think racist is like a tattoo. that they Right. Make, that <laughs> if they say they're racist, they'll put, somebody will put a racist on their forehead. They'll never be able to escape it. Right. They think it is a fixed category. hmm. They believe it is a fundamentally a bad person. Mm-hmm. They believe a racist is a person who is hooded, who's right. a white nationalist. Right. right? who is a a segregationist, Mm -hmm. and so they're like, I'm not in any of those things. I'm a good person. I'm against the Klan. I'm not racist. But it's a descriptive term, Mm -hmm. right? And and it describes what a person is is doing in the moment. And so when a person is saying that um, a particular racial group is, is inferior they're being a racist. When, when a person is right. doing nothing mm-hmm. in the face of racial inequity, they're being racist. When a person is literally supporting persons and policies um, and power that is creating and reproducing racial inequity and injustice, they're being racist.
0: Right. So that's important, too, right, because you're, you're getting the category racist out of this question of sort of um, a kind of the personal indictment and, and making this claim, and you say that beautifully in the book, that this is, this is descriptive. Mm-hmm. I'm offering an account of behaviors that yeah. are part of the processes of inequality. Yeah. So stop being so emotionally invested yeah. in this term, right? Essentially, that's yeah. what you're saying, right?
1: Precisely. And, 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 and I think that emotional investment and people feeling like they're being attacked. Right. Also, I think people don't realize the origins of that.
2: Like mm-hmm. the
1: origins of the idea that racist is like the R word, right, <laughs> right? Right, to the <laughs> that's, right. Oh, right. That
0: it's the worst insults, precisely right. that worst it's a racial racist, slur, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that it is a pejorative. Mm-hmm. In fact, actually, white nationalists, in particular, have been parroting that idea for decades, because what they wanted to do is they so wanted, particularly, to get mm-hmm. white people to not recognize their racism. And if they don't recognize their own racist ideas, then white nationalists will be able to easily organize them. Right. And, 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 and to give an example, Richard Spencer, mm. two years ago, who organized the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, which, which led to, of course, the violence and the death of, of Heather yeah. Heyer, mm. he once said, as I talk about in the book, that racist isn't a descriptive term. It's a pejorative term. It's the equivalent of someone saying I don't like you.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. So this is an important thing to confront and I think yeah. um just shifting gears and I want to come come back to that question and actually to think about um if you, you know, can offer an account of what it means to be anti-racist yeah. in its detail but yeah. but also um so what, one of the things that I think you do quite powerfully in this book, um, and there are a number of, of elements, but is that... So, you, you know, the title is... Um, it gives an indication of uh, a kind of instruction that you're offering that has personal implications, Definitely. right? So, um, you know, how do you discern... Um, how you operate in the world in a way, whether or not you're actually sort of participating in the structural logic, in the processes of racism, or you're actually working to dismantle them. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, so there's this personal element, but at the same time you talk about structural issues, you talk about gender, you talk about sexuality, you talk about capitalism, all these sorts of things, and so um, I think it's really um, powerful and important and I want to ask you um, why, and this is also in light of Stamped, right, yeah. um, in the midst of you having this sort of deep account of the structure the structure and history of white supremacist thought and power, um, that you decided to talk to people at their interior level.
1: Yeah, so I didn't want to write this book this way. <laughs> okay. Uh, and... Because, and when I say this way, I did not want to speak to people through my own personal story. Mm -hmm. Because as an historian, as a scholar, this is not the way we're sort of trained, as you know, to sort of (laughs) communicate scholarship or even communicate ideas. And so that was, I was deeply hesitant. And then I'm deeply personal and private.
2: Right, right.
1: (laughs) And so to really put some of the most shameful moments of my life Mm -hmm. um, on the page for all the world to see was obviously very, very difficult for me to do. But at the same time, these ideas and structures and policies and powers at its core are impacting people, Mm -hmm. um, are impacting individuals. And individuals are either part of the forces that are challenging racist power Or unknowingly or knowingly supporting it, Mm -hmm. and and so fundamentally because of that impact and because each of us are supporting or opposing racism, you know ultimately I wanted to sort of show that and how that operates on a sort of day to day basis, how that operates conceptually and even all of the complexities within that. In in my case, you know, in certain for most of my life, I was actually supporting and opposing. (laughs) Yes. racism or white supremacy without even knowing it. Right. And so I feel like the best way to do that was through my own personal story.
0: Yeah, so um uh, and I want to I want to talk talk more about that because um, maybe it's good to start with I want I want to talk about your personal journey but to start with what I think will probably be the source of most of the pushback you get mm-hmm. <laughs> about the book which I think is which but which I think is a really important argument that you make, which is one that Black people can be racist, mm-hmm. and you talk about it in several different ways, yeah. right? And so, one way that you talk about it is actually the ways in which black people can adopt white supremacist ideologies, mm-hmm. vis-a-vis black folks, mm-hmm. and also vis-a-vis other people of color, um, and also um, so the relationship to sort of white racism as a as a sort of large scale phenomenon and the encounter with the individual who might be anti-racist. So can you just talk about um, both why you thought that was important to include and just what it means, right? Yeah. What, it, yeah. So I,
1: I obviously for a very long time thought black people could not be, be racist. racist uh, right. <laughs> and, and I would have argued people.
0: People down, right, People
1: yes. down for anyone who made that case. And I don't, I don't think it was... I believed that until I started researching for STAMP from the beginning, okay, and until I conceptualized, I first defined a racist idea, yeah, and I defined it as any idea that suggests uh, a racial group is is inferior or superior to another in any way, and then I, that book was about Mm anti-black racist ideas, Mm -hmm. and so then I went in search, And, and ultimately, one of the things I tried to do with that book was sort of take prevalent and prominent and popular ideas today and really sort of figure out its intellectual sort of genealogy.
2: Right.
1: What was unavoidably the case was that black intellectuals were part of that intellectual genealogy. Right. And I couldn't, even though I wanted to like, exclude them or go around them, I just couldn't. You take the case of the, one of the most dominant and, and um, harmful um, anti-black racist ideas of the 20th century, was the idea of the broken black family and the patriarchal black woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I should say matriarchal, who was Mm -hmm. harming the black family Mm -hmm. and the black community and so on and so forth. That idea, of course, was popularized by by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Mm -hmm, as you know. But in his Moynihan Report in 1965 he repeatedly cited a black scholar, right. an E. Franklin, Franklin Frazier, Frazier
0: right, who right. wrote
1: the famous book on the, the Negro family in, in 1939, mm-hmm. who also praised Du Bois, who said a similar thing in one of his black family mm-hmm. studies. Mm-hmm. And, and so I could not wrap my head around the fact that this idea about the broken black family mm-hmm. was largely coined by a black scholar. Right. And I think everybody now recognizes how um, harmful that idea is, Mm -hmm. how it sort of justified the assault on welfare, Mm -hmm. how it justified the assault on black women, Mm -hmm. how it justified so many assaults in the latter part of the 20th century. And so ultimately, I'm saying that I think that was the first recognition of it, that Mm -hmm. I could not um, separate the intellectual genealogy of some of these ideas. But I think what was critical was realizing what racist ideas do to people.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: and I realized that no matter the racial group, when a person was anti-black, when a person thought that there was something wrong with black people, they spent their time intellectually and even in terms of organizations either trying to civilize black people, Mm -hmm. attack black people, Mm -hmm. attack everything but the real problem, which was racism which was white right, right supremacy.
2: Right, right.
1: And so that's how it literally functioned, yes. right? And that's on the ideological perspective. Yeah. And, and then obviously when it came to, like, power and policy, I, I, I think that it is absolutely the case that black people have limited amounts of power
2: mm-hmm.
1: vis-a-vis white people, particularly within a white supremacist society. But to say that no black people have no power. Right, it's just, it's is just, just not true. Yeah, right. it's just not true. And, right. and, and to also say that even 100 years ago, when we did not have all of these black elected officials, when we did not have a, a black person on the Supreme Court, uh, when we did not have so many black professors and so on and right. so forth, we all still had the power to resist. Right. Mm-hmm. And some of us used that power,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: some of us did not, mm-hmm. and typically those who did not did not because they thought the problem was black people right mm-hmm. and and, ulti- and so you know it was sort of working through all of that that ultimately caused me to to realize that that black people can be racist too, particularly to black people mm-hmm. and that ultimately internalized racism was the real black on black crime
0: hmm that's beautifully stated. You um, you tell this story about a, a speech that you get, gave as an adolescent. Yes. <laughs> um, and you deconstruct it for precisely that, right, the kind of internalization of a narrative of black deficiency, right, yeah. or inadequacy. Um, and I think it's so powerful in part because um, the rhetorical devices that you describe are actually quite, common (laughs) in kind of black public spheres, right? Um, So you're you're calling into question, you know, that practice which is a a real, I mean a long-standing widespread practice. Um, And I wonder is this kind of just a, a question that's a little bit off to the edge but I think it's interesting is, you know, why do you think that has such persistence even as I think, you know, I agree. I think most of us Black people think that we are anti-racist in some form or another, mm-hmm. and yet we listen and we nod and we applaud to these kinds of lectures where they come from Chris Rock and <laughs> or, right, or a pastor, right? Yes. I think
1: I think it's a combination of factors. I, I think first and foremost, I mean, this speech that I gave when I was a a senior in mm-hmm. high school. Yeah. Um, and it was at a Monica King or oratorical contest, mm-hmm. and I was one of the finalists. Um, so, in other words, I had won my school competition, and I was one of the three finalists across the county. Mm-hmm. And I spoke with 3,000 mainly black people. That's and basically, my speech was a litany of anti-black ideas, particularly about black youth. And so mm-hmm. I said things like... Uh, black youth are the most feared in society, mm-hmm. as if it was their fault right. they were so feared. <laughs> right, right. I said things like, black youth don't value education, right. which was a very prominent it's true. Yeah. idea.
0: It still has uh, currency, uh, Precisely,
1: right? that black youth keep climbing this high tree of pregnancy, mm-hmm. that all of these ideas about what was wrong with black youth, and ironically, as you know, if there was ever a decade in which... Seemingly everyone was coming down on the heads of black youth. It was the 1990s. Absolutely. And, and that's the decade in which I came of age, mm-hmm. um, and I consumed those ideas and, and, and reproduced them. And you know, to your question, I, I think it's a combination of that across the ideological board, it is acceptable to say those ideas. So, you know, I thought I was right. radical right, right, <laughs> when right. I was saying that. Sure. Right. And so obviously black conservatives will say that. I think they say it in a different type of right. way.
0: Right. It has a different right? valence, and but.
1: Precisely. Right. And, yes. and I also, you know, realized through some other work that that I think not only in terms of the ideological popularity, but ultimately black people regularly see individual black negativity. And, mm-hmm. and what we have been led to believe is that we can generalize that.
0: We read that as it, right.
1: Precisely. Right. So everything right. we say, I mean, we know youth that, that are feared because of what they're doing. We know youth that don't value education, mm-hmm. right? And, and so because we know individuals like that, right. we just assume that that, right. that, is, that that is part of the problem, not sometimes realizing that there are white youth who don't value education. Absolutely. There are right. white youth who are extremely violent. Mm-hmm. And not realizing, and, and I think I'll uh, let me just say I think one of the things I've tried to emphasize mm-hmm. is what makes black people equal to other racial groups is not our sort of great black people and our great attributes; it's our imperfections.
0: Right, we're human, fully we're human. human. Right, um, yeah, and I, uh, you know, I think connected to what you're just saying is there's also the piece. That you talk about with respect to class—that's really important, right? Because all of those things that you describe, right—we know youth who don't value education, there are kids who are violent—that that's not uh, an accounting that you can give of poor and working-class Black kids. That's across the economic spectrum, right? So that the, so it's also um, sort of you're challenging what in many arenas is accepted as gospel, right? even from kind of liberal perspective where people feel sorry for certain, because of a lack of opportunity, but still traffic in these ideas of kind of something being deficient,
1: right? Precisely. And, and, and And I think I was trying to really anchor the book on, mm-hmm. in a way on this class perspective yeah. by, by making the case, and I should say by showing how I was largely raised in a black middle-income home. Mm-hmm. And the new black middle class of the 1980s understood themselves as a distinct racial group right. that was distinct from black poor people. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that in, in, in my parents were, were taught and to a certain extent believed that they were members of the black middle class because of their own hard work right. and ingenuity, right. which meant that people were still poor because they weren't working right. hard. Right. And, and so, it, and when we think of like racial groups and racial disparities and racial distinctions, we don't think intra-racial, Distinctions. Right. We don't think about how there is a such thing as white trash right. <laughs> that mm-hmm. white elites have created to substantiate um, their beliefs in their own white inferi- superiority. Priority. Because we, right. we have to say that those
0: they must be some other precising right. yeah. and mm-hmm.
1: and and so I I think that class is is absolutely sort of critical in understanding the way race sort of operates and 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 I think that we, when, I, when we speak about being anti-racist, it's not just saying sort of black elites are equal to white elites. It's black elites recognizing that there's nothing more with black poor people right. and that all they need is resources and opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I'll also say that I think one of the most difficult things for people to realize, and it took me a while to accept this, is this, this idea that oppressive conditions literally are not just dehumanizing, but they actually make people into subhumans. Right. That, that poverty literally depresses the behavioral and cultural sort of uh, attributes of mm-hmm. black people, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they are acting behaviorally deficient because they're poor. Mm-hmm. And what we don't realize is black elites, like white people and like other people, are creating their own standard of how people should act. Right. Assessing poor blacks from that standard right. and saying, "Oh, they're not reaching this standard because they're poor."
0: Right, right. When in <laughs> fact, sometimes the behaviors that are seen as deficient are in fact logical and yeah. actually sur- and, and mechanisms for survival Precisely. or resource um, accessing resources that are necessary when you have very limited resources. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, um, and I, I, that speaks to. I mean, one. I, I I love the way that you tell the story of your folks as a kind of movement, social movement history story, mm-hmm. too, because, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we, we miss in the public discourse is sort of what happens after civil rights and black power, exactly. right, yeah. and and how um, it's so easy to fall back into the grooves of a kind of racist society, um, even for people who came through the movement because of the way the world is organized, right, yeah. and that kind of, like... I just think that kind of vulnerability is so refreshing, right, as mm-hmm. that is sort of I'm turning the gaze on me and my world and not just externally and then you also, but at the same time you do this um, thing that I think is is rare and very elegant where you talk about moving through a series of ideas, right, where you confront, you know, whether it's the ISIS papers. Or post-traumatic slave syndrome or yeah. you know or um sort of sort of moving through a series of ideas as you're trying to figure out like what is this race thing and you you leave many of them aside but you don't do it in a form of attack right mm-hmm. of other thinkers you just say well that that wasn't right right
2: mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to move through and I I find that really refreshing in terms of like you know, as intellectuals, you like sort of move through a body of ideas. We all have these competing ideas, ways of seeing things, and we're trying to approximate, approach the truth. And you get the sense that those were useful for you to go through, even if that's not ultimately where you ended up.
1: Yeah, man. And I I think that ultimately, I was trying to figure out what was the problem. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, initially, I think when I graduated high school, I thought that the race, the racial problem was largely black people. And I, I, thought also that it was racism, but what was, what was predominant was I thought it was black people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then when I, a few weeks into my college life at, at FAMU in Tallahassee, mm-hmm. I, like black folk across Florida, experienced the election of 2000, yeah, where, right. you know, pretty much this voter suppression um, was ascendant and pretty much through the election to, to, to George W. Bush in the faces of black people, Right. right? And those firsthand and secondhand stories of, mm-hmm. of people's votes being spoiled or, mm-hmm. or people being turned away were, were flooding into FAMU because FAMU students like, oh, were representing the entire state. You know, absolutely. you had people from all over mm-hmm. the state. So I heard racism, racism, mm-hmm. white racism in, in particular. And, and so it was undeniable. Right. And it ultimately caused me I didn't really see it actually as racism at the time. I saw it as white people. Right. Because many, almost all of the people who were engaged in these acts were white. Right. And so then I went from, okay, the problem is black people and to a certain extent, racism to the problem is black people and to a certain extent, racism and white people. Okay, And then I was like, okay, what is wrong with white people? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's when I went in search of all of those books, trying to figure out, like, what is wrong with these with these people? Why are they engaged in these types of racist Acts and then ultimately, finally, when I really started engaging in study, particularly through through, through, through taking courses in African and African American history, mm-hmm. that I begin to see that ultimately the problem was racism. Right. 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 And it took me a while really yeah. to get to that point.
0: So let. So I wanna I wanna um, sort of take that up in this question of sort of of white people, mm-hmm. right. Um, because there are some readers who who think who will think you you give space to white people to not be categorized as racist, and you know there's the whole school of thought where people say, well, all white people are racist because mm-hmm. they're raised in a racist society. So, can you talk a little bit about what is it what is it that you're you're trying to alert white readers to in terms of their the possibility? You know, sometimes it like their, their pot their their pot, their potential in this vision of an anti-racist society? And also, what are you signaling to black and other people of color readers about how to navigate white people in this struggle?
1: Sure. So I think as it relates to white people, I mm-hmm. think one of their sort of anthems as it relates to race is, I'm not racist. Right. Right. And so obviously I wanted to confront that very head on yes. and say there's only two options here. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no such thing as being not racist. Right. There's only being racist and anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And and also there there is a such thing as a racist right. and an anti-racist. Yes. It's not a fixed category. But if you say something that's racist, you're being a racist at that moment. And you have the capacity, though, to change. Mm-hmm. Even though you were raised to be racist, and I suspect the vast majority of white people in this country were raised either consciously or unconsciously to be racist. Right, absolutely. You still have the capacity to change, mm-hmm. to confront your upbringing, mm-hmm. to confront um, what you, in a way, are addicted to, um, and, and to be different. And and But in a way to be different, to be anti-racist is going to be a constant struggle. Yes, it's, a, it's it's, almost like a personality characteristic that we decided as adults, we don't want to be that way anymore. Right. It's not as if we can wake up one day and be like, okay, I'm no longer, I'm not that, right? I'm not yes. that way anymore. Yeah. No, you yeah. literally on a moment by moment, day by day basis, have to constantly self-critique self-examine and 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 strive to be anti-racist and so that's obviously what i want white people to do while simultaneously and i think i talk about this early in the book uh, obviously like many other writers you know it's critical for them to recognize their privilege Mm -hmm. in in so many different ways and i talk about how even poor poor white people have privilege Right. right but then also for them to recognize why so many people of color are angry.
0: Yes, right. Are,
1: are not only angry about racism, but even can show anger towards them,
2: mm-hmm.
1: even when they may not have said or done something that is racist. A, a white person who's truly anti-racist has an understanding and is an empathetic to, let's say, black anger, particularly when it's racialized, yeah. because they understand the how, how insidious white racism is, mm-hmm. They understand how it's very difficult for a person of color to pick out the good anti-racist white person in a crowd of racists, sure. and and so when they f- see that and hear that and feel that, they're empathetic.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's also something I think that's
1: critical in the book.
0: Absolutely, um, and I guess, relatedly, the you know what I the, the feeling I get. When I read through your journey, is that there's there's a there's a kind of an ethical mandate, right? Like when mm-hmm. you describe, you know, these questions that you continuously ask yourself. But there's also uh, a mandate for becoming learned, right? So, you know, it as you go through the book and you're reading and you're thinking there's this, you get the feeling, I think, as a reader, oh, right, so I'm supposed to have this disposition where I'm studying and thinking and trying to make sense of this, right? So it's both my deed and um, my development, right, Mm -hmm. in the path to becoming an anti-racist. And one of my favorite parts um, of the book is when you talk about your time at Temple with two of our mutual friends, Kaila and Yaba, and... and, I love it because you talk about one obviously because you bring the questions around sexuality and gender into mm-hmm. talking about being anti-racist, which too infrequently are brought into those conversations. But also, it's one of the multiple places where you talk about the individual encounters that are part, were part of your personal development. Definitely. Right? Yeah, you talk yeah, a bit I
1: mean, about that. You know, you know, Yava and Kyla. <laughs> yes. and, uh, you know the way that they are now, mm-hmm. uh, in which they are pretty unapologetic yes. obviously about their anti-racism about their feminism uh, about their sort of love of queer people mm-hmm. and and of course they were the same way then uh, mm-hmm. as, as graduate students at, 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 at Temple and I was coming from an experience at FAMU in which I really had never really engaged and understood black feminism
2: mm-hmm.
1: I really had never even considered and even deeply thought about um, black queer theory mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily I, 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 and I talk even in that chapter about like my parents didn't necessarily raise me to be homophobic right. but they, ne- they did not certainly raise me to recognize um, that there was nothing wrong with black queer people right. and so because of that in many ways I consumed many mm-hmm. of the ideas about black queer people and certainly about black women. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> so I arrived like at Temple was pretty much a, a homophobic mm-hmm. um, sexist mm-hmm. um, and didn't even realize it. Right. And they allowed me to realize that mm-hmm. because they created a, a, a community right. in which certain things were not going to be tolerated. Right. Um, attacks on black women, uh, attacks on, on black queer people were just not going to be tolerated in their presence. Mm-hmm. And, and And I sort of And they, what was interesting is they would, if somebody said something, you know, about particularly those two communities, they wouldn't like jump around their throat and just, you know, scream at them. You know, they would, of course, engage them. But I felt those as attacks,
2: (laughs) Yeah. right? You know, I
1: felt those as attacks and and I had to recognize why I felt those Mm -hmm. as attacks even when they weren't talking to me mm-hmm. they were obviously talking to me right, right. but what was beautiful was even though I had these homophobic um, ideas even though I, I came there with this sort of gender and queer racism they sort of opened themselves up to me mm-hmm. to sort of mentoring me yeah. to befriending me yeah. which I thought was absolutely sort of critical mm-hmm. in my own personal development mm-hmm. and so any sort of uh, gender critique that I have, uh, any sort of critique of, of, of homophobia that I have, I, you know, I owe to those two, to those two women.
0: That's beautiful. I mean, and I think it's beautiful on, on multiple levels. I mean, one, because you describe the cultivation of a community Mm -hmm. that on the one hand, right, doesn't tolerate bigotries, but also didn't expel, Right. Exactly. And, and then, that's
1: a very slippery, yes.
0: Yeah. Yes, it's a de- yes. And, but that's, in some sense, that's what you're suggesting in yes. the entire yeah. book. How do we do that, right? How to think about how, how to do that, to have space for transformation, um, to work through the moments of feeling defensive and under attack, mm-hmm. right? Those, that's precisely. Um, the, the process, right, mm-hmm. that's essential. Um, and I also think it's really important because it is, um, you provide in that, in that chapter an example of the combination of s- the, the scholarly endeavor, because they're both, you know, extraordinary scholars, yes. and the work of community, right? And so often for those of us who are academics, the scholarly endeavor sits off Apart from our interpersonal interactions, mm-hmm. but you're talking about sort of bringing those pieces together, and similarly, um, you know, you you talk about the personal, your personal encounters, and some diffi- rather difficult ones um, with illness, yeah. right? Um, and I wonder, you know, if we can can talk about that because you you part of what you set up is you you do. You provide a, um, an accounting of all of the effects of racism, including the physical ones, yeah. the, with this respect to our health, and then you talk, you write about both for for you and your wife encounters with with um, uh, serious illness,
1: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, it um, one of the things that. That happened after Stamp from the beginning mm-hmm. when I started speaking about it, and you know, and people started reading it. Is people would say to me like, "This book was so difficult for me to read." Yes, you know, reading five hundred years of people de- demonizing black people in every way imaginable obviously was is very difficult for for people who either care about ble- black people or who are black mm-hmm. to read, and so they would say it must have been that much harder to write yeah and I would just you know <laughs> it would just go in one ear and out the other okay. just because I didn't want to even think about that mm-hmm. like I was sort of so focused when I was doing the research you know as you know right. um, you just, to, you yeah, to produce through. the book yeah. and I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about the impact that it was having literally and then combined with the fact that I was writing this history of racist anti-black racist ideas as a black person and, you know, the book ended up being 500 pages, but I probably collected thousands and thousands oh, yeah. of pages of mm-hmm. ideas, and w- many of which I had to sort of sift through. And in How to Be an Antiracist, I talk about these as like trash bags yeah. that I literally like, had to consume, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. in order to basically make it legible for the reader. And at the time I was doing that, I was also caretaking my wife, yeah. who had breast cancer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... It was obviously, you know, she was very young in her early 30s. And, you know, when you contract a disease, any disease, it's hard. But then when you contract a disease that you don't think you should contract because of your age, yeah,
2: absolutely.
1: Um, you know, it's, it's, it's even more difficult. And, and so obviously it was a very difficult process, um, you know, caretaking for her. And, and I in no way wanted to focus on my own physical health mm-hmm. at the same time, you know. My wife had a serious illness and so obviously I did not. And, and then a few years later, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Mm-hmm. And friends asked me, well do you think that in some ways was the effect mm. of writing stamp from the beginning? Mm. Of, of taking in all of I mean they didn't use the term trash yeah. bags, but, but in taking all of that in, into the gut, yes. right? And you know, um, and I didn't know. Right. You know we'll never know right. but certainly that could have been the case and mm-hmm. and I, as you know, I mean scholars are finding now the literal health effects of of racism
0: oh absolutely, and i um you know that that question of the variety of ways that racism marks us in the body, whether or not there's a kind of direct correlation right in the way that we talk about it in the in the terms of science mm-hmm. uh, or a sort of larger environmental phenomena so for example for you being a scholar who has a, an enormous public profile and a father and a husband and the director of a center right you you are you are serving the world and, and and serving your family in a multiplicity of ways and even that right mm-hmm. has potential costs right a sense of calling that has some some costs um, that, that we can read in part is connected to thinking about, well, what are the consequences of this mission, right? Um, can we, I, I, and related to that, I, I do want to um, talk a little bit about sort of about your work um, and developing this anti-racism center. And I, you know, was thrilled and honored to, to be at the book festival that you organized, which I think was you know, one of the most extraordinary book festivals that I have um, ever witnessed, Um, and both because you had this fantastic array of speakers, but also a a real sense of community and investment and people who were thrilled to be there with you, (laughs) right, and the space that you had created. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the connection that you see between your work as a writer and scholar and your work as an educator and someone who is cultivating like a a think tank of sorts. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, I can never thank you enough for coming and and, and sharing about your incredible biography, of course, of Lorraine. Um, But, I mean, we wanted, we have envisioned the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center as as a space that convenes. I mean, there are so Mm -hmm. many writers, for instance, right now who are writing on Racism, yeah. who are trying to sort of get us out um, of this pit that we've been in for mm-hmm. hundreds of years, and and it's as you know we, we typically go to a book festival and we're, we're, there's only a few of us there, right? right? Uh, <laughs> uh, or of course we speak alone, you know, at mm-hmm. a at a at, but it's rare that we come together
2: yeah.
1: um, at a festival um, and and share our ideas, mm-hmm. um, and so we felt that okay, what if we convene some of the you know most impressive uh, intellectuals and writers you know, mm-hmm. of our time each year yeah. um, who are writing on this topic. And, and again, that's part of a larger mission to sort of convene and team up specialists to really take a more scientific approach to sort of how we're solving, I should say how we're examining and solving this, this, this racial problem. In other right. words, we should be building teams of people.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: should be convening people. To, to ask and answer some of the most intractable racial questions of our time. Right. And oftentimes, as you know, we do this in isolation. Right. And we know part of the answer, right? And, and so we're like, okay, what if we bring those different parts together, whether it's, you know, to have those conversations at the National Anti-Racist Book Festival, whether it's research and policy teams that mm-hmm. will literally conduct the research, issue policies, and ultimately design campaigns to change policy or whether it's literally convening specialists in a field to create policy where, where it doesn't exist. You know, that's what we're trying to do because and ultimately to be anti-racist, as you know, is to not just sort of think about and view people as, as equals. We right. literally have to be a part of this. Um, of this movement to change whether we're changing the narrative Mm -hmm. whether we're changing policy or whether we're changing power
0: yeah and I um I think that that's absolutely right and it's so important and I um it brings me back to um this really powerful point in the book where you're talking about um capitalism right and racial capitalism and the way in which our economic order has been so profound in the United States, so profoundly and intimately tied to the structures of racism. You say, well, if there's a way to redeem capitalism, we don't. It's not in place, right, <laughs> present, right. And I, it, it, that what you were saying brings me to that because, um, you know, I'm so used to. Um, and I'm so inclined to talk to you about these, like, commonplaces and the conversations that we have in, in black communities, because you provide such an insightful analysis of them. But one of them that you hear all the time is, we've got to stop doing all this talking and reading and act, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I think the question that, um, and I always find that troubling because I love Ida B. Wells' statement, that people must know before they can act, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so this, this work of producing knowledge and imagining policy, and I actually am um, curious sort of how you think about or do you think about, like, this in terms of stages, right? So, and what I mean is, um, you know, does the work of being anti-racist have meaning at the level of the individual school? Does it need to be, you know, government policy? Does it need to be revolution? Does it have its, bo- you know what I mean, those questions like does, what do you do with questions of citizenship? Like how do you imagine the scope for someone, for we say for like one of, the, one of our freshmen, mm-hmm. right, who comes in like we once did, like wanting to change the world, right, and then realizing, oh wait, I might not be able to do this by myself, right, but what's the vision for them?
1: I think it's it's up to the individual. Okay. I think every individual is standing in a different place and space. So mm-hmm. not every individual is like Professor Imani Perry, who is a, you know a national and international mm-hmm. figure that can have these sort of national and international sort of conversations mm-hmm. and, and questions and, and be at these tables. You have people who they're sort of standing in their place is their church. Mm-hmm. And there's policies that govern that church. Absolutely. There are ideas circulating in that church. And are you a part of the movement in that church to dismantle racist policies, Mm -hmm. to uh, eject racist ideas from that church? Are you uh, being an anti-racist in that sense? You have people who it's just their sort of local neighborhood and, you know, their local neighborhood is gentrifying. Mm -hmm. And which part of that struggle are you want. Right. Um, so, you yeah. have people who just have a home, right? They don't necessarily have time to sort of join an organization um, because they're working 60 hours a week, but they do raise their children. right Right? and and so they can be raising and training their children to be Mm anti-racist they can be sending a dollar or two dollar to an anti-racist organization that's that's fighting against racist policies Mm -hmm. you know that's possible they're being anti-racist when they do that and so i think we should all think very clearly about where we are in the world you know what places and spaces are we most passionate about what do we have the capabilities to do AND FORMULATE SORT OF OUR ACTION PLAN, I THINK, AROUND THAT.
0: I FIND THAT um, REALLY POWERFUL AND MEANINGFUL, AND I THINK PARTICULARLY BECAUSE FREQUENTLY THOSE OF US WHO, YOU KNOW, THE KIND OF PART OF THE POLITICAL SPECTRUM WHICH WE OCCUPY um, DIMINISH THE INDIVIDUAL DEED, Um, BUT GIVEN THAT RACISM IS A PRODUCT OF CULTURE AND POLICY AND THE REPETITION OF DECISION-MAKING, that, that, that the disruption is important, right? Even at the individual level, that you might turn Without the question. ship, right? Yeah. And that even to imagine a different kind of future, those kinds of disruptions have to take place. So it's not, you have a structural analysis, but um, you're not a structuralist in the sense of like the end game mm-hmm. yet, right? It's about how do we move towards something, right? Yeah, a way of living. And yeah.
1: I just don't understand how structures are changed if they're not changed by individuals. Individuals, right. right. And so Absolutely. And that is really, <laughs> and, and not only individuals, but the mobilizing and organizing of individuals. Mm-hmm. And, and and so we have to simultaneously assess and push at the individual and structural level. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why we, we have to, like, because, you, you know, as you know, there's some people just want to look at the individual. That's right. right. And just hide the, the sort structure, of structure right. and say, oh, just we just as, need to take personal responsibility right. or... Mm-hmm.
0: And, and to me, that's, heart, yeah. that's
1: flawed in a different type of way.
0: Right, right. Um, so I think I, I might, I think I personally know this from reading your work. But I am interested in asking you, like, who are your, um, like, if you were to account for your intellectual genealogy, who are the figures that most, uh, as scholars, like of previous generations, who you see yourself most directly in the tradition of. And that's a question that came out of left field, yes. but I think but yeah. because you're a historian and it's all yeah. of your work is so deeply grounded in a tradition of thinking through questions, I just can't resist asking that
1: So I would say i mean as I think now, in certain types of ways, you know I'm seeking to challenge sort of policy in the state yes, and I think in that type of way, you know someone as unapologetic as Malcolm yes. X um, mm-hmm. you know obviously as someone who who I admire in the sense that he's not only apologetically critical of the state, but he also, through his autobiography and even many of his speeches, he's critical about himself. Yes. And he's critical of black people yeah. when they're sort of um, being, being racist. I mean, he mm-hmm. didn't use that sort of term. Um, and then, obviously, in terms of journalism, you know, as an essayist, um, as a writer for, for sort of popular. Uh, mediums, I'd say Ida B. Wells, yeah. um, who, you know, as you know, I mean, she literally, like, I wrote today in the Atlantic how she, like, I can almost feel her staring down a lynch mob, yes, um, and not, not moving mm-hmm. an inch, and, mm-hmm. and in many ways, she wrote that way, yes, right, um, and her focus was to sort of write for and to the people, mm-hmm. um, and willing a willingness to. Say and do whatever um, to sort of challenge white supremacy, right? Um, and to
0: tell the truth is right, precisely and directly. And, and, yeah. and and
1: not be willing to not backtracking in, in, in any bit. And then I think as a as a sort of all of that together, obviously Du Bois, yes. um, and the ability to simultaneously be involved in in organizations, to be an essayist, to be a mm-hmm. scholar, um, you know. Obviously, I think more than any other scholar, I, I look up yeah. to to Du Bois. And the irony is, you know, at his time, you know, even personal narrative was something that was utilized, yes. particularly by black scholars. And in many ways, we've moved away from that. Um, and oh, I think only true. now we're really it's starting, to, starting yeah. to move back to, to that.
0: That's such a good point. And I, I, um, I, I thought you were going to say Du Bois. <laughs> and partially because... Um, and I think the Mal- Malcolm and Ida B. Wells both make a great deal of sense, but, th- you know, with Ida B. Wells, the, the process of discovering the truth, yeah. going to the data, right, exactly. that ground-level work. Um, and, and I wonder, and I'm thinking about this because you talked about Malcolm, do you see this book as a conversion story? I do, yeah. yeah.
1: And yeah. I, I see it as, in in a way, both confessional and conversion story, yeah. that I was... Constantly confessing and converting
2: mm-hmm. to
1: to someone new, mm-hmm. uh, to to someone sort of being more anti-racist. Yeah,
0: and I I, I think about that in terms of um, of of Du Bois as well because you know so often when we teach these historic figures we teach them as sort of singular at a, a particular yes. point, but. You know, if anybody is an example of moving through, right, a very long life, trying and and through personal crisis and tragedy, right, and trying to get closer and closer to the truth and sitting with something for us, like, yeah, that's not, I mean, that's his life. And so you pick up that practice, which I think is sort of the, you know, in the best of our intellectual tradition.
1: And some of those essays, as you know, that he wrote and speeches he gave in the 19. 30s and 1940s when mm-hmm. he was critiquing himself Self, yeah. Right? I mean to me are just some of the most powerful sort of things he ever wrote and mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that as intellectuals right we're supposed to be critical right. meaning we're supposed to be critical of ourselves Ourself as too. well
0: right and fully human exactly right which I think I mean there is you know it is interesting because there is that um, and you talk about this right uh, and, and you talk beautifully about sort of um IN in PARTICULAR WHEN YOU TALK ABOUT THE PROCESS OF GOING TO GRADUATE SCHOOL, RIGHT? SO WE SEE BLACK STUDIES, IT EMERGES FROM SOCIAL MOVEMENT Mm -hmm. AND THIS DESIRE TO, AND YET THERE'S ALSO THIS PRESSURE TO BE KIND OF DISPASSIONATE INTELLECTUALS. AND I THINK YOU ARE A REALLY IMPORTANT EXAMPLE OF WHAT WE ARE SORT OF IN THE THRALL OF IN THIS MOMENT IS SAYING, WELL, ONE, absolute objectivity was always a fiction, right, and <laughs> yes. that in fact we are called to both be rigorous in our understanding of history and our analysis, but also to be fully human in the midst of that, right, which means that we have to be fallible, that means we have to be vulnerable, all those mm-hmm. sorts of things.
1: Without know. question, I mean, I tell the story, as you know, in the book of... Yeah. Um, Ama Mazama who ultimately came on yes. dissertation advisor and her sort of lecturing on basically there's no such thing as objectivity. Yes, which
0: I and, I, I love that moment in the book.
1: Yeah, and I you know, I was I was trained as a journalist in in at FAMU and I mm-hmm. was still thinking but I was sort of turning to towards being a scholar and of course journalists hold this idea of objectivity mm-hmm. in the way as as scholars do is as, as almost on the throne. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I asked her, okay, so like, I don't understand. Like, if we can't be objective, then what should we strive to do? And, you know, she she's not a woman of many words. And, and so she looked at me and said, just tell the truth.
0: Tell the truth. Right. <laughs> That's right. Which mm-hmm. is a matter of, like, serious study. Exactly. Yeah. And, and
1: irony is in our moment, right, in 2019. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it resonates that much more. How mm-hmm. our job as intellectuals, as journalists, as really as human beings is just tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Even when that truth is self-critical, even when that truth is hard to say, Yeah, if we can't find the courage and even the clarity to sort of tell the truth, then, then I mean, what are, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. What are we doing here?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to ask um, a question about craft. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, you know, one of the things about the impact that you've had is about the beauty of your prose right and so um, and you 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 tell um, stories like anecdotes um, in ways that are riveting right you tell these and um, you know what for you what part of this journey to sort of transforming the world is sort of to to take up um, Tony K. Bombara's quote, right, the job of the writer is to make revolution irresistible. Like, what part of your work in this regard is, in a sense, about the beauty of the vision and the writing, the craft?
1: I think for me, it's... I sort of have begun to distinguish between a public scholar and public scholarship. And actually, a few years. You do that in book, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. And and so for me, I I view a public scholar as someone who is known by the public, mm-hmm. and but I don't want to be known. I don't want to just be known. I want to produce public scholarship, which I view as scholarship that literally impacts the, the lives yeah. of the public. I
2: think it's important. And, and and
1: and so. When you talk about impacting, and and in this case, sort of changing how people see the world, changing sort of racial narratives, you have to make the book accessible,
2: Mm -hmm. right?
1: You have to be able to sort of speak to the people. Um, You have to present it in a way that people will consume it, right? Especially when you think about what we're at war against, right? And the stories, the ideas that is presented are also riveting just in a different type of way like mm-hmm. this idea of just this massive invasion of people sort of coming to just des- destroy America and I am your savior I mean that's a pretty you know for people who think that there's something wrong with Latinx immigrants it actually to a certain extent is is riveting and and that's this right. is what we're up against right now we're uh-huh. we're up against these these obviously fictional stories yes. that are presented as nonfiction and I think that's part of the difficulty right Which oftentimes racist stories have been fiction so when you when you mm-hmm. write fiction I'd love to write fiction right. because you, there's no rules right. so you can just you can say, say whatever, whatever you want. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. and so in a way that's what we're up against we're up against fictional stories yes. and so when we Present a, an alternative sort of view that's I would argue more accurate of the world we have to p- produce it at that level and, yes. and, and, and so that's really what sort of drives me and I feel like if if I tell a story that doesn't sort of grip people then i 'm mm. to blame mm. that if I share an idea that people don't understand i 'm to blame yeah and so while others would see like, okay, these people don't understand good storytelling or, you know, they're not, they don't understand this idea. No, I'm always to blame, at least I, that's how I understand. So then I go back to the drawing board and figure out new, a new and more effective way to tell that story or to share that idea.
0: Yeah. Um, so there's clarity, there's truth, and there's also beauty, yeah. right, that are all working simultaneously. Um, Final question, <laughs> What? Um, although I could, I could talk to you forever, um, what are your hopes for this book? And it's very clear to me that your, your hope and your vision is not a selfish one, right? Um, and I appreciate that because there's a lot of pressure to be selfishly motivated in this world, right? Um, that your hopes are about um, sort of what you want to give to the world. What it, but what are your hopes for what this book will do? What, and for the readers, where you want them to go from here?
1: So I think for individuals, I mean, some of the best responses that people have said to me is when they've said something like, this book is liberating, in, yes. in, in the mm-hmm. sense that it, it allows them to no longer be confined by racist ideas, mm-hmm. by this desire, for instance, as a black person to, like, represent the race well, yeah. um, this belief that because of what they've said and done in the past, that they can't be anti-racist tomorrow.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And and so, you know, I'm hoping that in a way sort of re- removes those shackles, those yes. conceptual and even... Um, those shackles that that allows people to really understand themselves and all their their, their complexities to strive to be anti-racist. And then ultimately, I hope that this book helps with the work of other scholars like yourself to really build a movement, right, a social movement, a powerful movement, and powerful people who are ultimately going to dismantle racism and white supremacy.
0: I have the same hope. Thank you, Libra.
1: Thank you so much.